This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We have hit and surpassed the benchmarks for the next stage of reopening. Across the province, 65% have received one dose of vaccine, while 23% are fully vaccinated here in Toronto. The numbers are even better. Three quarters have one dose and nearly a third have two. So there's a growing chorus of people calling on the province to move up the schedule and allow businesses that have been shuttered to get back to work. In the meantime, The more contagious Delta strain seems to be taking hold, making up two-thirds of the new cases in Canada. And it's looking at other countries, countries that have been ahead of us in the trajectory of the virus that is most worrisome, to me anyway. Uh, We're seeing new outbreaks and new restrictions in Australia and Israel which has about 80% of its population vaccinated. And, you know, I'm wondering, are we seeing a bit of a replay of what happened in the spring when we were about to relax just as a new danger looms? And the answer to that is going to be partly political. So I would like to check in with some actual experts. I'm going to give the numbers out if you have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon. So uh, I hear very conflicting messages. One is we're doing great, let's reopen. And the other is, uh, boy, this Delta variant can be a real problem. Dr. Sly. Maybe if this was a, a drama we were watching, it would be a thrilling uh, nail-biter right to the very finish. We still don't know, which, but it's not. It, people's lives are at stake here, and so we've got to be really serious about this. Yeah, all the indicators that we're looking at, at least the vast majority, are going in an excellent direction. With all those numbers we're, we're, we're looking at almost day-to-day over the seven-day averages, but that variant that's coming along is uh, even more of a, of, a, of a cloud on the horizon than we'd originally thought. It's got all the three factors that we didn't want to see in a variant. In other words, it, it can avoid the influence of antibodies. It increases the uh, risk of being in hospital, for example. Uh, and and it, uh, it, it, it spreads uh, about 40-50% more than the last variant. And that, of course, interprets to how many, how many we're going to need to vaccinate to bring up the herd immunity. Now it's going to be a much larger percent. 
Mm-hmm. I just saw yet another article that said uh, AstraZeneca and Pfizer, and presumably Moderna as well, are uh, effective against the variant if you have two doses. I- is that good enough, Dr. Ja? Yes, uh, we have now good evidence, particularly from the UK, who have been monitoring the rollout of the vaccines, and they started vaccination earlier than we did, that in fact... Um, a single dose, but ideally a double dose of either the AstraZeneca or the mRNA uh, vaccines provide very high levels of protection against hospitalization or death. And we have to remember what our goal was going into the uh, strategies for vaccination was to prevent people getting sickened or dropping dead in our healthcare system being overwhelmed. So by that measure, we've achieved lots of success. Going forward, we do have the scenario that the UK now also does of having this Delta variant being an increasing proportion of a shrinking total. Um, So there will be cases caused. So the key questions now are what strategies can be put in place for uh, trying to deal with not the big fire, but the small fire. And we have to remember, we cannot rely only on vaccines. The other public health pillars, which are testing, including rapid testing at home or self-testing, contact tracing, and much better data, those are the other pillars, uh, along with our very successful vaccination program that we have to draw upon. Uh Dr. Sly, first of all, are are you aware these new cases in places like Israel and Australia, are they severe cases causing hospitalization or are they milder cases? They appear to be affecting the younger age groups, uh, particularly 12 to 24. Britain has seen a, a large surge in those. And the symptoms seem to be slightly different as well. But Carrying for those that do become serious, become serious enough to be in hospital at a slightly greater rate. But the, the older people are not being as affected at the moment. But the, uh, a, re, a study a few years ago, a few days ago, for example, from uh, Oxford, has suggested that uh, we may be seeing this surge in the young 12 to 24-year-olds. Because they're not vaccinated? Yeah, that could be. That could, simply, they're less likely to be vaccinated. So we can't assume necessarily that they're just affecting the younger age group. We have to watch out for that. But the, the, uh, the, um, if, if, we, if we look at the, at the figures, for example, uh, a study done on the, um, in Britain uh, on deaths showed that about 30, 47% were unvaccinated compared to with about 98% unvaccinated with the original variant that we were seeing in Canada, the, the Alpha. Um, this means really that, that we've got a, a variant that could well be um, more evading of the vaccines. This is why the, the emphasis is to have that second shot. It becomes more important now than ever before. Well, yeah, and then the numbers that I've seen uh, show that the vaccines are not very protective after one dose, but very protective after two doses. Dr. Ja, I, one of the things that I read is that in Israel, they're saying that the new variant is the result of people traveling and not respecting quarantine on uh, the way in. So is is Canada... 
ill-advised for the lifting of restrictions? I mean, it only applies to Canadians who are fully vaccinated. Well, I think that's not the main driver of the increase. Uh, The Delta variant is already in Canada and circulating in particular communities. So our challenge here is to have much better and more timely data, including much greater numbers of people tested in the hotspots. So we we know that, for example, recently in Ontario, uh, Peel and Waterloo and other places are now hotspots. Toronto has kind of now become a cold spot, which is good. So we need that information. We need then to have the strategy, which I think is the correct one, of making sure those hotspots get the second dose of the vaccines as quickly as possible. That's the best protection against the Delta. And we have to take a more global perspective that um, we have to think about how to get the world vaccinated without the whole world, without all adults in the world being vaccinated, new variants will be circulating. And um, because the mutations occur naturally, it's really a consequence of how much active transmission there is. So places like India, Brazil, others that are still have lots of community transmission are breeding grounds for eventually uh, a variant that might actually not respond to the vaccines. The Delta seems to for hospitalizations. So this is, we have to fight a global battle. We can't just think, okay, we're going to reclose and open our borders. This It doesn't work and it's not going to be effective. Uh, Dr. Sly, do you have a view? Um, did, did the government move too quickly? Uh, these travel restrictions will be relaxed on July the 5th? Well, what I want to say is what Dr. Jaz just said is something we should be listening to very, very carefully. All of the variants have appeared where there's been a hotspot in the world, South Africa, India, Brazil, and so on and so on. And therefore, we, as long as those places remain relatively unvaccinated, some of the, some of the countries in Africa haven't even seen vaccines arrive yet. And here we are squabbling about, should we really be vaccinating five-year-olds and eight-year-olds and so on? But some of the people haven't got any. And as long as there are large populations in the world that haven't been vaccinated, we can expect yet more uh, terrifying variants to appear in those areas that will then spread around. So it's a, as, exactly as your other guest said, it's a global uh, concern. That we and need. we've got to share, right? We've got to share. <laughs> we've got to share. And uh, it, Canada has been generous with money, but we also dipped into the supply that was intended for poorer countries. Of course, we were having lots of supply issues of our own here. Exactly. And this goes back to the inability for Canada to produce its own vaccines. I think we did have an ability at one time, and we've actually produced some Ebola vaccines in small quantities, but nothing like this scale. So one of the fallouts from this, I'm sure, will be the ability for Canada to produce on a regular basis its influenza vaccines. But in the longer term, we should be looking at producing mRNA vaccines and the new experimental novel types as well. Well, apparently, we just heard about uh, completion of a facility in Montreal. So um, we'll see what, what that comes to. Uh, uh, another thing that we've started to see, which, uh, you know, has a lot of people shaking their heads, is this vaccine shopping. I mean, we, we've become so familiar with the brand names 
and uh, in some scenarios, it is said to be, you know, like Pepsi and Coke. Uh, and we've heard of cases of people walking away because they can't get their Pfizer shot. What do you make of that, Dr. Ja? I think the most important strategy for all Canadians and all your listeners to know is get two doses as quickly as you can, and it doesn't matter which ones. That's the message. It, unfortunately, along the way, even some of the authorities, like uh, the NACI, muddled that message, but I think everyone recognizes now that the core thing is to get the two doses. And... um it's absolutely the right strategy is to not worry about which of the vaccines. They're all superb at preventing hospitalizations or deaths. And that's what uh, really should be the main goal. And, and um, Dr. Sly, the, the interchangeability, um, what's the evidence? Well, we're still waiting for the, the final conclusive results from the world's biggest study at the moment being done by the folks at Oxford. All the initial evidence shows that there's no uh, less protection by mixing the vaccines. There can be a slight increase in the short-term discomfort after the, But in the longer term, the indications are that it's probably a better coverage. Imagine a, uh, two kinds of holy blankets that are covering you. One blanket covers about 80% of you. The other blanket covers about 85%, but they're different percentages. So we might see a, a silly analogy, I know, but we might see a slightly better coverage with the two. But we're still waiting for that final set of data. Okay, uh, Dr. Ja, uh, uh, we are saying goodbye to you now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And I'd like to bring in Dr. Alon Vaisman, who is an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at the University Health Network. Hi, Alon. How are you? Good. Thank you. So uh, we started this discussion talking about, yeah, we're, we're ahead of schedule. We're surpassing benchmarks on on the vaccine rollout. But, you know, when, when I look at other countries who are ahead of this, countries like Australia and Israel, and they're seeing new outbreaks of the Delta variant, and they have, especially Israel, very high percentage of the population vaccinated. You know, I, I wonder, uh, is this a, a dangerous period that we're heading into? Yeah, it's interesting to look at those instances, those other countries, because although uh, case numbers do rise or have examples of case numbers rising, like in Scotland or in Israel, they have not seen a rise in the hospitalizations that has come with that or what we've seen in previous waves. So it's a little bit early to tell uh, because those rises have only come recently, but it will be interesting to see whether any increase in hospitalization occurs. If it doesn't, then it justifies the moving forward of all the dropping of the mask mandates and opening the society up as, as was done in those countries. Uh-huh. And, and when given the timing of when we've just started seeing those new spike in cases, when would you see an increase in hospitalization should it come? Typically, if somebody uh, acquires COVID, they become ill at around five to seven or 10 day mark. So if we're looking at a spike in cases now in Israel, let's say that has occurred over the last week, then by the middle or end of next week, we should start to see hospitalizations occurring. But so far, they haven't had that. Um, they haven't had any deaths in the last week related to COVID. So, so far, all the data is quite reassuring. So by the end of June, we should have an answer from some of these countries about whether 
the mass vaccination has led to prevention of hospitalization? So far, the answer is yes. Well, that's uh, encouraging. Let's take a call from Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Hi, afternoon. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I have a question for the doctors, if I could, please. Um, my singing teacher actually didn't hasn't been vaccinated yet. She went to her dentist, um, and she came back um, after having work done. And then um, the next day, she suffered for four days with a possible what, what looked like a, and felt like a bad sunburn on her face, itching, um, pain, all sorts of symptoms. She went to her doctor, and the doctor said, it's probably allergies. And she says, no, I've had allergies. I know what allergies are like. This is not it. So finally, the doctor said, you have spike protein shedding. And that's the second case that I've heard uh, people that I know. Um, can you um, tell me exactly um, what your take is on that? Um, the two doctors, Dr. Sly and, and the new doctor, just appeared. Please. Uh, so uh, I, I get one, Go ahead. One part I wasn't able to catch is that the procedure was a dental procedure? Uh, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Apparently, the doctor had said that um, for people that don't know, and I didn't know what those spike protein shedding is, um, that she has not been vaccinated. The people that were working on her had been just recently vaccinated, and so she got these symptoms, which were pretty bad. Oh. And it's the second person I've heard that had those kinds of symptoms. And did she get a test? Um, I, I don't know. She didn't tell me. Okay, well... Um, she said d- she went to the emergency or went to her doctor, not sure which, but she did have doctor tell her that. So uh, just two things to quali- to, to uh, clarify here. One is that if somebody you're exposed to has COVID, you won't manifest symptoms of COVID typically in the four, until the four or five-day mark because that's the average incubation time of the disease. So if you're not vaccinated and you're exposed to somebody who has it, if you have symptoms immediately the next day, it would be very unusual for that to be the symptoms of COVID. Secondly, if somebody has been vaccinated and you are exposed to them, there isn't really any way that you can pick up either COVID or any remnants of COVID or any kind of elements of the disease from having a person vaccinated. Um, The vaccine is not a live vaccine, it's just uh, some genetic sequences. So it's only within that person that they develop an immune response, not to anyone else who they've been exposed to. So I'm not exactly sure what, what it could mean protein shedding um, in my protein shedding apparently had something to do with the person being recently vaccinated well well that she was around because she wasn't vaccinated. I think that the what the doctor is trying to tell you is that he's never heard of such a thing and doesn't doesn't think it's uh, a likely outcome I haven't read anything uh, like that about anything like that dr. sly of you not at all. I think Dr. Weissman's right on. It's uh, very strange. Okay. Well, Barry, um, nobody here has ever heard of such a thing. Um, I don't know. Maybe look it up or something. Uh, doesn't sound likely to our experts. Thanks. Oh, so the doctor made it wrong then, huh? Well, yeah. Dentist isn't a doctor, actually. It's no, no. A, I'm talking yeah. about... No, no. That she went to an actual doctor. Okay. She went well, to an emergency I, or a family. I don't know. This is okay. nothing we've heard of. Uh, you know, if we see something. Thanks. All right. You hear something new every day, I guess, with this virus. It's, uh, you know, and a lot of it is not necessarily accurate. Um, Dr. Vaisman, uh, what do you think of people who are now saying we should 
move to reopen earlier than planned. Is that a dangerous thing? I think uh, every, all the data that we have so far from Canada and other nations points to the fact that where we're at in vaccination suggests that we can open earlier. The, the most important thing that is going to be a little bit troubling for a lot of people to wrap their heads around is the fact that even if we have cases, the relevance and the importance of that cases is dramatically reduced if there is no concordant rise in hospitalizations or deaths. That's what people are going to have to try to understand because the whole point of restrictions, of you know having all the lockdowns, is to prevent the acute care centers from being overwhelmed, is to prevent deaths. If we're not seeing deaths or severe cases associated with COVID, even if there are bumps in the number of cases, it's not going to be that significant. We don't do that for other respiratory viruses for good reason, and it shouldn't be the case for COVID. So given everything we know now, I think it does make sense. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Sly, do you agree? Yeah, and I think that uh, it, it's probably good to be looking at the fact that we can expect small increases, bumps here and there, small surges, things that worry us a little bit. But I doubt whether we're going to see the kind of uh, surge we saw in, in the third wave. I think that, we, that won't appear simply because of the vaccine, the success of the vaccine rollout so far. We've got a long way to go before we get that double dose of figure up. That's still lingering quite low, but that's moving up every day. But I don't, don't think we're going to see anything like a, a third wave in the, in the future, although there may be slight increases. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Prime Minister has said we're going to have a, a one-dose summer, and we might be having a two-dose. I mean, 30% of people here in Toronto, and I have to say, every, you know, uh, I, almost everybody that uh, that I run into on a regular basis has had two doses. Yes, yes, and uh, and we should encourage those that you don't run into to also have two doses as well. The people lurking slightly be off, 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 off the center stage. Uh, that's the only. That's the way to get to get around this. That 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 the double dose of vaccine is the way out of this. And Dr. Vaisman, is it important to adopt the strategy uh, that? that was taken just before with uh, targeting hotspots as opposed to blanket in terms of getting second doses? I think up until recently that made a lot of sense. But where we're at now in the pandemic is that hotspots are no longer as hot as they were in the past, up to you know about the mid of, middle of June where we are. Um, like the total number of cases are so low that there isn't as big a difference. And just to add to your earlier point about the double vaccinated that everyone you know Uh, What's also important to recognize is not just how many people with 30% are doubly vaccinated, it's who that's doubly vaccinated, is that a large chunk of those patients or people are people who are older. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's the people who we care most about in terms of the likelihood of going to hospital. So if, if, you know, know, a bunch of 20, 30, 4-year-olds are not doubly vaccinated right now, but they will be in two weeks, well, uh, it's even more important the fact that a lot of those patients, most people were older and less likely to be admitted. So that's even more reassuring. Well, I keep hearing about 25-year-olds who are getting their second shots. Uh, and, and, you know, I know of young people who work here getting second shots. So I guess the next question, there's this controversy over vaccinating children. And there are some people who say we're going to have to vaccinate children to get out of this thing. And then some people are worried that the risks might outweigh the benefits. Dr. Sly? 
Yeah, remember, kids are still part of the population. And if we're looking at trying to achieve a, a herd immunity, or I guess it's now being called community immunity, a last bit of a tongue twister, uh, kids are still part of that. And so to complete the whole cycle, yes, we do need to increase those kids, but the priority is a bit lower. We make, make sure we've got all the other age groups done before then, and now we're seeing it. The idea of what we call hotspot stuff, this, this is a good solution at the end of a, of a process, too. This is how we got rid of smallpox, of finally, in Dakar, is, is looking for the odd case and then immediately descending upon those cases surrounding it, vaccinating everybody and then moving back and waiting for the next case to appear. But in general, the mass vaccination seems to now be working very well. So let's keep on with that. It's encouraging people and, and try not to let the denialists and hesitators uh, have their say. And, and Dr. Vaisman, I will give the last word to you. Yeah, I, I agree with what was said. Um, when it comes to children, I think I'm not fundamentally opposed to the idea of vaccinating children. It's just that it's too early to know whether it'll be necessary or not. Uh, you know, whether or not we will need to depends on whether there's still ongoing cases and whether kids become a reservoir for COVID like they are a reservoir for other infectious diseases. So it's a bit early to tell. It's good that they're doing safety trials to make sure that it is safe to, to vaccinate children if that is necessary, but it's a bit early to know whether we need to do that yet. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Timothy Sly. We appreciate your expertise as always. Pleasure, Libby. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to check in with Toronto Mayor John Tory. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now it's time for one of our periodic chats with Toronto Mayor John Tory. And there were clashes between protesters and police yesterday, and several people were arrested as the police cleared the illegal encampment at Trinity Bellwoods Park. There's been a lot of criticism that this was an outsized response. Now, there were about two dozen homeless people who were actually living there, and they were joined by hundreds of advocates and supporters who seem to have seized the narrative on this issue, which seems to me to be fraught with political correctness. I am joined by Toronto Mayor John Tory. Welcome, Mayor. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. It's my pleasure. So uh, what do you make of what happened yesterday and and the response to it? Uh, Has the whole thing kind of been colored with political correctness, as I think? Well, it's not up to me to comment on that, but I will say this. I mean, for months and months, I mean, to the extent of 20,000 visits by city staff, we have a wonderful team called Streets to Homes, which is meant to help people who are experiencing homelessness to get somewhere to come inside to live. Uh, They've been visiting these encampments and trying to offer, with some success, uh, people uh, permanent housing. And so we've had hundreds of people, literally hundreds, from the encampments in days gone by who've been, uh, you know, found a home uh, to live in. And so then uh, we got down to the point, though, where there were, say, in Trinity Bellwoods Park, uh, about 20 people left, and there was about 60 or 70 structures there. And it, it became increasingly difficult for us to even have our staff talk to these people because the protesters uh, would, would stop that from happening. And so 
we couldn't let the encampments be there forever because they're unsafe and they're unhealthy and they are in a public park where, you know, we have to have everybody able to use those parks. So the decision was made by the enforcement people, not by me, but that they would, um, you know, take some action in the light of having tried everything else. Um, and, and so when people talk about it being an outsized response, it, it was only the size that it was, the response, because if it had just been a handful of city staff, parks and recreation staff and streets to home staff, and 20 people experiencing homelessness, I suspect you wouldn't need anybody there to watch over that because we could have carried on some conversations with those people. And we did, as it were, convince 12 of them to come inside to different kinds of housing other than a park. Uh, but you wouldn't have needed the police there. But it was only because there were hundreds of people there, as you pointed out, who came and, and somehow wanted to put themselves into the event. And look, I understand the right to protest, but uh, if you look at the TV pictures, you'll see that you know the police were required to keep everybody safe because um, some of the protesters were kind of pushing at fences and pushing at each other and you know whatnot. So look, I, I you know I just would reiterate the fact we're back at today what we've always been trying to do, which is one by one, visit by visit, trying to convince every one of these people that have some special challenges in their lives to come inside and housing we have available for them that is much safer and that is much healthier and that is not illegal. How do you have uh, any? I mean, the again, the narrative seems to be taken over by people who are advocates, supporters. I mean, I've seen some of them, and I know that they live in very nice houses and very good neighborhoods. Uh, you know, um, how do you deal with that? I, I there is no way to deal with it uh, except to keep on with our work, and we keep on visiting the people experiencing homelessness. We have housed hundreds of them in better circumstances. Uh, but, you know, we've made clear to them, we've made clear to the public that one thing we can't do is just leave encampments uh, in public parks for an indefinite period. They've already been there for a long time while we've been very patiently going about talking to the people experiencing homelessness. Um, but we can't leave them there forever because they're not healthy. We've had fires, I mean, dozens and dozens of fires in those encampments. We've had, uh, you know, all kinds of incidents happening. They're not healthy and they're illegal. So, um, I made it very clear that we would have to be doing something, and we hope that, you know, for example, the very same uh, advocates you're talking about, when, when we would go to them uh, and say, well, would it be okay if we took some of the empty tents and took them away and we store the stuff that's in them so people can pick that stuff up if they want, they refused to let us anywhere near uh, those tents. They said, no, we couldn't go near them. They're empty tents. Uh, so, I don't know. You just have to sort of do what you think is right and try and do it in a way that is respectful um, and, and peaceful, and that is what we tried to do. Um, and we will continue to try to do that work. Now, I, I have to tell you, you and I have talked about the encampment um, at Lamport Stadium. We haven't always agreed. So that encampment was cleared recently. And I have to tell you, walking by for the first time in forever, I have seen, <clears throat> excuse me, mothers with babies and small children there. Uh, I mean, the, the, the bottom line to me is that the people who live in these neighborhoods, uh, you know, um, they seem to be forgotten in this. Well, this is part of the uh, challenge for us is that, you know, in Alexandra Park, for example, where there's presently a very large encampment, we literally will not be able to put on the summer camp and other kinds of programs for kids and families because the encampment is taking up the space for those programs we're offering. And so, you know, that is why we, we among all the reasons, including the threat to the safety and health of the uh, people experiencing homelessness, that we have to, we can't just leave the encampments there. Um, and it's interesting because, um, you know, as you sort of pointed out, um, we get a lot of complaints about these encampments from the local residents um, who, who live nearby these parks, and they want us to 
you know, they want us to try and do what we're trying to do, which is to do it compassionately and carefully, but nonetheless, say that we just can't have people living indefinitely in the public parks. And I, I believe in that. I mean, we, we can't. I mean, it's... It, it, if Toronto Star put it best and said, this is not a good form of housing, you know, and to, to be in a tent in any park or any place like that. So, yes, um, part of the idea here is to clear those parks so that people can use them as they're intended to be used by everybody, by kids and families and local neighbors and others. Uh, it, it's not that just the encampments. Now, uh, again, this is, I mean, the city keeps in intensifying houses. We have tons of condos here that are built without, you know, green space around them. So uh, in in a place like Trinity Bellwoods Park, and I, I had this conversation with Brad Ross, and he said it's been a party park for a long time. But, you know, the residents there can't use it. You have very rowdy people partying, you know, urinating on other people's property because they can't make it to the Johnny on the spot. I mean, it, it just seems like uh, the city doesn't have control. Well, it, it's a very difficult thing to control because really what it relies upon is human behavior. We don't have enough police officers. And look at what happens when you deploy police on something to try to keep everybody safe, uh, you know, at the events of yesterday. People say that you're, you know, over overreacting and sending too many police. If we sent all the police that would be necessary in order to stop people from urinating in Trinity Bellwoods Park or any other park, and all the places on the beaches, and all the places where people are, you know, drinking huge quantities of alcohol, I don't have a problem if people have, you know, a beer in the park, but when they bring cases, we don't have enough police officers and bylaw officers to do that, first of all. But think of, you know, what it would look like in terms of, you know, police combing through these parks, asking everybody a few questions. But so... You know, really, if you, you think about it, I mean, is it, isn't it really the responsibility of people, individual people, to police some of their own behavior? Do we expect the police to do all of this? You know, and, and so I, I guess it is frustrating, but I, you know, I, I would just say that we keep at it. Uh, the police and the bylaw people are doing the best they can. Um, and, uh, you know, I like to think people can step up and address this a bit themselves, too, so that we can have uh, everybody able to enjoy the parks at all times and the local neighbors not be disrupted. I haven't seen the city councillor anywhere near this. Well, Joe Cressy. I, I don't know which one we're talking about. Whether Joe, Joe Cressy. Cressy. Joe, Joe Cressy, well, I will say Joe Cressy's been putting in really midnight oil hours on the health crisis, and he has, and it's been a good partner for me in, in that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, whatever he's done with respect to the park, I, I can't speak to. I know he wrote a letter not too long ago to city officials asking them to take additional actions, but I can't comment beyond that. Okay. Um, and another thing I have to congratulate you on, uh, and that's the vaccine rollout. We're hitting a, a, a big milestone. We're ahead of the province in general. 30% fully vaccinated, and you have your big shindig uh, at Scotia, Scotia Plaza there. Are, are you yeah. going to do one better to peel? Are they going to be DJs, snacks? We're having DJs. The mascots of the teams will be there, and it, and it should be fun. But the real point of it, of course, isn't to have a party. It's to get people vaccinated. And as of this morning, we have 21,000 people who had already registered to come to the Scotia Plaza, which you can do by going on the provincial website. There's still some appointments left. Um, but the point, I mean, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll set a record, I hope. But the real record that we're setting is one that says we're getting people vaccinated up to you know, the level where we need, which is to have everybody with two doses so that we can completely reopen the city and return to a more normal life. So, you know, we're working at that, and I'm pleased the response has been great. And I would just say that there are still, you know, significant percentages of every single age group, including the oldest age groups, that are not vaccinated with the first dose. And people should, please, you know, um, look up and receive whatever health information they need because it is safe. 
um, it is important and it's going to be the best thing to keep you healthy as opposed to doing anything else that's bad for you. It's going to do a lot of good things for people. Uh, finally, I would like a yes or no answer. A lot of people are calling for an earlier reopening, including some epidemiologists. Uh, what's your take on that? Is it a good idea, bad idea, yes or no? I think it'll probably come a couple of days early. I think it is best we should stick more or less to the plan. Uh, I think they're looking at these numbers every single day and trying to make a judgment. I think it'll probably end up coming a couple of days early. But I think if you start really messing with a plan too much that was generally commended by those very same doctors as being a good plan, well thought through, simpler than ones before that had you know too many colors and too many grades and too many stages, if you start fiddling with that too much, then you you know you you ruin the effectiveness of it. And I think a lot of people are supportive of taking you know, a cautious approach, but opening as, opening as soon as we can safely. And I think that's what I support. I think that could mean that we could do things a few days early, but not weeks early. Okay. Mayor John Tory, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're taking a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to a couple of business people. Restrictions for fully vaccinated travelers are being relaxed. So uh, are businesses going to get in line with that? And how is that going to happen when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Earlier this week, the government relaxed restrictions on fully vaccinated Canadians returning from abroad. That will take effect on July the 5th. There are requirements, including negative tests and proof of vaccination. So now my question is, how and when will businesses line up with these new rules? Because right now there are many businesses, many places who do not allow you in if you are a member you or a member of your household has traveled within the last 14 days. And they usually just ask the question and rely on a truthful answer. So how will they handle this? And uh, I want to put it out there. Are there any other things that you're wondering about? Will they be relaxed in line with these other restrictions? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to welcome David Main, General Manager of the Toronto Lawn Tennis Club, Dino Virgona, the owner of Fiesta Farms, the largest independent grocery store, and Kendra Suzinho, which is who is Fiesta Farms assistant store manager. Hello and welcome and thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, let us begin with David. And uh, David, right now, uh, if people want to come and play tennis outside, they have to sign a waiver and it, it has to say nobody in my household has traveled within the last 14 days. Yeah, that's correct, Libby. Um, that is our current practice. And uh, because we are a membership base, um, it's a little probably easier than a lot of businesses to, to have that kind of control feature in place. Um, uh, with the, the new, um, I guess, rules coming into effect on July 1st. That's something, actually, I have a meeting tomorrow to reevaluate, and I expect that we'll uh, adjust our waivers as uh, in, in line with the government's recommendations. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's July the fifth for for those particular restrictions, and and um, let's bring in Dino and Kendra. And you've got the same thing. Uh, full disclosure: uh, uh, I shop at Fiesta Farms. I play tennis at the lawn, and uh, at the grocery store, there's somebody who stands at the entrance and asks you that question. So, what are you going to do about that? So we're we're. We're planning on sticking to that guideline until uh, until the uh, the city does uh, lift the mask uh, bylaw. Um, and yes, it is based on the honor system. Um, it's a little too soon to make any sort of change to our policy. I think I know that the government's lifting it for travelers, but we're still in line with wanting to keep everybody as safe and healthy as possible. And I think it's just too soon right now. Uh-huh. So, so you are still, I mean, it's, it's not the mask requirement that I'm referring to. I'm referring to the, uh, the question, uh, have, has, have you or anybody in your household been outside the country for two weeks? So, um, what about that one? Are you going to relax that one? I don't think so. I think we're still going to stick to the policies that we've had in place for the last year. Right now, um, we do have weekly meetings, though, to sit down with, you know, our management staff. And as things change, uh, maybe a couple weeks into it, we'll see how, how the numbers are and how things go. But I think it's too soon, again, to make any sort of change to the policy right now. David, uh, you know, when it comes to travelers, they have to prove. uh, But um, how are you handling that? I mean, right now, it's just it's just a waiver. It's the honor system. Yeah, again, being member based, um, it's it's, uh, it's a strong community and, and we do trust our members. Um, with this portion of it, it will be a discussion point as to whether or not um, we'll require proof because it does ask for double vaccination and I believe it also asks for a, a negative test as well. So um, that that's something that we still have to determine. Um, you know, the government has found a way to put it in place and I, and I think we could do it as well. Um, but I, I do have a lot of trust in our membership that uh, they want to support the community that is the Toronto Lawn. So uh, we may very well stick to uh, to just uh, trusting our membership. Mm-hmm. And um, do you foresee uh, any kind of uh, requirements, you know, generally where people have to prove their vaccination? I mean, if you've got new members coming in or anything like that? Well, yeah, we, we start to, and, and, and I guess staff is another part of that, yeah. we start to get into some privacy uh, concerns. But, you know, I kind of look to the United States, and you already see this, and especially up the eastern seaboard, where we have some members that, that are currently in the United States, and, and things have quite opened up. So um, I would expect in the, next, in the coming months um, that there may be um, – access to special indoor events that you would need to prove that you were double vaccinated for. But currently with a lot of our outdoor activities, um, I don't see that happening in the near future. Mm -hmm. And Dino, uh, again, do you foresee any time when, uh, if it's easy to produce proof where you would ask people entering the store to prove that they're vaccinated? Yeah, I'm going to have to say I I don't foresee any time. And and, uh, yeah, it goes back to the whole privacy thing. I think this is another thing where you're just going to have to base this on the honor system for the time being. Because even proof, like, 
I think there's ways of getting around that, um, not to sound so negative. Um, I think, you're, yeah, you're just going to basically have to trust your community when you're asking them at the door. And what about your staff, Dino? Are you going to ask your staff to be vaccinated? Uh, we're not really. We, uh, we currently, um, we're not putting pressure on anybody. We're allowing them to, if they would like to get vaccinated, they're encouraged to. Um, however, we are not implementing any sort of policy right now for that, no. David? Well, Libby, I, I will say that um, we're not requiring it, but what we put in place is a incentive. And so each staff member will get a gift card. Um, and we, we've got a few different options for them. Um, if, if you have to farm, we get perhaps. 90% <laughs> or more um, vaccinated. And, and, and so they, they have to come forward with the proof. So I, I've done it personally. I've, I've let our HR manager know, here's my proof. And uh, we're tallying up the numbers. And so we're kind of going out in a different direction. We're, we're using the carrot a little bit more instead of the stick, perhaps. Well, yeah, I mean, my take and, and uh, where I work here, we're also a business uh, dealing with these questions, is that in, in terms of businesses, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. There's a privacy issue if you do. Uh, I've even heard of some people raise questions that even if you offer an incentive, uh, people who don't access, who can't access that incentive can uh, can complain or sue or something. And on the other hand, businesses are required to provide a safe workplace. And that can involve uh, vaccination. Uh, uh, Dino, have you uh, thought of that at all? No. It's a very <laughs> sticky situation, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, you're almost stuck in the middle. I think most people, though, are, are getting vaccinated. Um, yeah, we're not putting a requirement into place, so I haven't really thought about it much further than that, to tell you the truth. Uh, Libby, I, I'd say that I, I have, again, with my colleagues in the United States where it, it's become a, hey, if you want to remove the mask, you need to show that you've been double vaccinated. So I, I do believe the mask use is going to be around for quite a bit longer, and it has been what's kept us um, safe in our in our Toronto Lawn community. Um, so it, it will probably stay there, but the double vaccination aspect will, will, will might be able to come in to being able to remove it, perhaps. So right. we'll have to evaluate that in the next coming months, particularly when we start to go indoors. Well, exactly. I mean, um, right now everything is indoor, is outdoors. Uh, in the grocery store, of course, it isn't. And uh, there are a lot of uh, young people who work there who wouldn't have access uh, to a vaccination. Um, you know, these things are, are pretty tricky and I would think also um, expensive to navigate, uh, Dino Vergona. They are, and... Um um, most of the vaccination centers are open up to, to 18-year-olds now at this point, right? Right. Um, so I, I... We've been lucky enough that we, we have somebody at the store that kind of looks up pop-up clinics. Um, we've had a few younger um, staff members ask if there is a way to get vaccinated, um, and we try and give them as much information as we possibly can. Um, but, yes, like you said, it is, it's, it's difficult because we do have such a younger staff um, they are taking the time off to go. Yeah. Because they do ask for the time off. So it's it's uh, it's definitely showing that they're going. 
So um, our confidence in our own within our own staff is pretty good. And and David, what's the take up of your incentive? It's been very good. I actually think we're going to hit that uh, number not too not too distant future. It is only for first vaccination, but our our theory is that if you've got your first shot, that you will be once you um, are able to get your your second shot. Um, we also have a, a staff member that's helped um, not only the staff, but we have 130 staff, but we have 2,600 members, and and a lot of those members aren't uh, perhaps the greatest at navigating technology. So they've been there to to help them and, and let them know and book their appointments and really you know, just to kind of you know any way we can encourage and help um, make it easier because I know <laughs> trying to help my parents get a, get the shot uh, they were very frustrated with trying to book an appointment too so we've almost kind of set up a concierge service through our reception uh, for the membership and the staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dino and and Kendra, so do you foresee uh, just uh, having to deal with this and and uh, keep really on top of your policies? Uh, you know, how difficult has it been, and and what do you see going forward? <laughs> it's actually somewhat gotten harder as the year has gone by. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's it's not easy. Um, but I also think our policies and our, our sort of strict mask mandate has helped to keep the store as safe as possible. Um, and including, we don't look at just our staff. We look at our community around us. We want to keep everybody um, safe. We want to keep everybody healthy. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, as things start to lift and as things start to open, I'm hoping people's patience levels go Drop. <laughs> Their patience drop. levels drop. Well, no, 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 I think it's the other way around. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. <Wait. laughs> um, But I think I think that you know people have to understand that. Unfortunately, yes, being double vaccinated is is a huge step, um, but we need to give it some time to see just how well it's going to work before we choose to change any sort of policies in place. Okay, and David, uh, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, it, it's been a, um, <laughs> an emotional uh, roller coaster ride for over a year for a lot of people, and I think we're all anxious to kind of get back to uh, living our lives fully again. And, and I think it's easy for us to want to slip back into that. Um, the, the as was mentioned, I, I think it's even more challenging right now with addressing the protocols because. You know, people think that there's a, a silver bullet of a double vaccine, um, and it's it's not quite that way. I mean, I, we're still going to have to keep some pro, um, protocols stringent, um, but you know, I, I do see there there's a light at the end of the tunnel in the next 60 or so days. My concern is going to be more when, for us, things get driven indoors a little bit more. Um, but hopefully, the vaccination numbers are higher, and um, and and we'll just have to manage the protocols as we move through it. Okay, thank you so much, David Maine, Dino Vergona, and Kendra Sozinho. Appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.